Inside of the, uh, the announcement sheet, inside of the bulletin, you'll find an insert that has the sermon outline. We're going to be looking at Psalm 137 this morning, all nine verses of that. And uh, I would invite you to open up uh, your phone or your pad or your Bible and, uh, to Psalm 137, and we're going to read that together right now. Psalmist writes, By the rivers of Babylon we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. There on the poplars we hung our harps, for there our captors asked us for songs. Our tormentors demanded songs of joy. They said, Sing us one of the songs of Zion. How can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest joy. Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried, tear it down to the foundations. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. This is God's Word. Uh, There's probably a couple of questions that you're probably having run through your minds right now. Uh, The first one is, why in the world this text and uh, the second one's probably, when did Mark lose his mind? <laughs> let, me, let me give you three reasons why we need to look at texts like this. The first is this, we should never alienate the church from the Bible. We should never alienate the church from the Bible. We preach even the difficult tasks, texts because of our high regard for the Word of God. We believe that it's inspired. We believe that it comes to us Uh, as a word that first came from God. Then number two, the Psalms in the Bible for a reason. If we take seriously what Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 3, this word has in it a teaching, a correcting, a rebuking, an encouraging, an equipping for us. It is somehow going to bless us in our understanding the world and our place in it and God. And then finally, one thing that ancient people and modern people have in common is calamity. One thing that we have in common with the ancients is calamity. The, the psalmist story here is an experience that we all share in the sense of, of experiencing a calamity in life. The details may be different. The degree of the calamity may be different. The pain and the suffering and all of that. But the story is the same. You discover that all you need is God when you discover that God is all you have. And so let's pray and let's jump into this text. Father, we're, we're grateful for every word not just uh, ones that we understand quickly and readily and that there is the, the fruit of a blessing that comes immediately to us, but we are grateful for all the words and for the work that that entails to press our mind not 
just into your word, but into you and your place in our life and in the universe and in all of the circumstances and events and situations that take place in your creation on this planet Earth. And so we come to this psalm, Father, uh, trembling. We come to this psalm with lots of questions, but we come to this psalm in confidence that it is a word that in your heart and in your mind is given to bless. And so on this morning, as we've all come together in your presence, our request is that you do, Father, in Jesus' name, give us ears and the eyes to discern and to understand, and from that understanding to make the the proper and requisite applications in our life. It's to this end that we pray this morning, Father, as we enter into this time of study. And we pray this with all of our heart in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the things, and you can probably quote it with me now, that we've been saying at the beginning of these sermons is, uh, if you want to understand the nature of God, the nature of life, and the nature of faith, read the Psalms. That's a quote from Dallas Willard. Sadly, though, some people find reading the Psalms a little difficult because the Psalms are both prayer and poetry. They're kind of a hybrid combination of prayer and poetry. And some people find reading poetry difficult. Prayer for all of us is not always easy. But a word about poetry and why we have it. Uh, Poetry at its best is, is not going to be sentimental and sticky sweet and sappy. Poetry at its best is not just going to be cosmetic language or or complicated language. It's not just going to be a parade of words for the sake of pageantry. Poetry at its best is not going to be boring. It's going to be intense personal experience. What the poet is doing, when poetry is at its best, the poet is dragging us into the depths of human experience. That experience might be love. Who understands that, right? Or it might be hate, or it might be hurt. Or it might be some kind of a profound fear or disappointment that comes into our lives. Or how about disillusionment? Disillusionment. Down in the valley. Or you're up on the mountaintop in exultation. You get the idea. But the language of the poem is to keep us honest with the experience of being a human being. And so I want you to write this down. It's up on the screen. The Psalms as poetry expose our experience of life, wherever that might be, in the loves and the hates and the disappointments, the exultations and the disillusionments. The Psalms as poetry expose our experience of life and of living that life before God in a fallen world. But the Psalms are also prayer. Human experiences, whatever they might be, human experiences provoke prayer in people who put their faith in God. Prayer, before it ever becomes an uttered word to God, before there's ever a petition, before we ever say our Father in heaven, prayer is a choice to be with God. 
And the psalm prayers help us to recognize that at the core core of everything, at the center of, of every experience in this world is God. The good and the bad, the delightful and the hurtful, the suffering, the grief, the tragedy, the exaltation, at the center of that is God. The psalm prayers show us how God takes precedence over every human experience and every human feeling. And sometimes those experiences are positive. Sometimes they're exhilarating. And sometimes not. And some of us have gone through experiences in this life where it felt, at least emotionally, that someone was trying to damage us. And some of us have gone through the experiences where it feels like someone is trying to kill us. And you know, the ironic thing about the Psalms is that they are filled with an unsettling number of enemies. I mean, God is at the center. God is solidly at the core of the message of the Psalms, primary subject. But concern about the enemies of life and the enemies that we meet in life are always right there at the elbow. And so the Psalms as prayer is the language we employ in our life with God in a fallen world. When we're going through the good, we have words. And when we're going through the awful, the awful, we have words for our prayer in a fallen world. And one of the, there are three things I think that basically we see, there's really more than that, but the three we're going to concentrate on in this psalm we are confronted with a catastrophe. And we're confronted with a thorough disorientation when it comes to the psalmist's understanding of life. And then at the end of the psalm, we find a spiritual reorientation. Uh, a, A bit of the background of this psalm, it is known as a psalm of lament. There's a debate as to when it was written. Some uh, of the scholars, some of the commentators think that this psalm was written after the exile to Babylon, that the people after 70 years are coming back, they're repatriating the land of Israel, and this is a reflection back. It's, It's a memory of a lament that's being voiced while back in the land. Others think that this was actually written during the time of the exile. I'll tell you what I I believe. I believe it was written right in the middle of the crisis. I mean, how can I uh, forget Israel if I'm back in the land? If I, how can I forget Jerusalem if, if I'm back in the land? I think he's right. This psalm is written in the middle of the circumstances of a calamity. And in this calamity, the writer is being forced to deal with the inescapable reality of life, which is his life has become a real and lasting experience of catastrophe. Historically speaking, You'll remember after the time of Solomon, Solomon dies, his son Rehoboam becomes the king of Israel. The ten tribes from the north are going to break off. There's this uh, set to between Jeroboam the first and Rehoboam. And Rehoboam makes some very foolish young man kind of decisions that leads Jeroboam taking those ten tribes to the north. They make their capital in Samaria. The two tribes in the south are under Rehoboam. Its capital is going to be Jerusalem. And you know through space and time, the ten tribes to the north become apostate. 
they, they come to a point where their relationship with God is, is held together with just gossamer wings. There, there's a period of time in which uh, God has to send these prophets like Amos up into the northern ten tribes to remind them of the place of God as creator and as judge and as God and as the giver of a word and of a law and a teaching for life, a rule of life. But they negate all of that. They deny all of that. They don't, they don't live faithfully to that word. And the Assyrians come and they just raise the northern kingdom to the ground. Samaria is sacked. The capital in the north is sacked in 721 B.C. And those people are carried off into, into exile and into captivity. And they are never heard from again. Those ten tribes, for all intent and purposes, disappear. 150 years later, Final two tribes, or the, 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 the last two tribes there in the south known as Judah, they follow the same trajectory. And Assyria has diminished in its power. Babylon is now the great power in the world. And they bring their military forces to bear on, on south Judah and, and Jerusalem on three different occasions. 605 B.C., 597, 596 B.C., and then finally 587, 586 B.C. They lay siege to Jerusalem, and they burn it completely to the ground. The city of Jerusalem, not one stone on top of another. The temple that Solomon built that represented the presence of the glory of God in shambles, its gold and everything taken out of the city and taken into Babylon, and the people are carried off into captivity for 70 years. And in Psalm 137, there are at least two historical references to that event in 587, 586 B.C. In verse 7, Remember, Lord, what the Edomites did on the day Jerusalem fell. Tear it down, they cried. Tear it down to the foundations. What that is a reference to, the, the book of Obadiah addresses and what Obadiah is, is saying to Edom is because you, you gloated over the, the calamity and the catastrophe that was following on your brothers, then hear this word against you, Edom. And Obadiah says, On the day you stood aloof while strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you, Edom, were like one of them. You should not gloat over your brothers in the day of his misfortune. The Edomites were the descendants of Esau, the brother of Jacob, whose name was later changed to Israel, and it's his boys that become the names and the, the tribal leaders that become known as the 12 tribes of, of Israel. And as Israel was being destroyed by Babylonian military forces, Edom packed a lunch and decided to make a day of it. And as they saw all of the violence and the cruelty, all of, all of the destruction and the devastation, when they heard all of the cries and they heard the, the, the suffering and the wailing, they said, like cheerleaders, keep doing it, Babylon. Keep doing it. We couldn't be happier 
than to, to be on your side, Babylon, as we see what's happening to Jerusalem. They became cheerleaders pushing the Babylonians to tear it all down. No sympathy whatsoever. You know, some years ago, there began a rivalry between the University of Texas and the University of a Texas A&M. It was a, a long rivalry, but then there is this unimaginable tragedy that took place November 18, 1999. On that day, a 59-foot stack of logs for that annual bonfire prior to the UT A&M game, it collapsed, and there are 12 kids, students that are killed, 27 gravely injured. The following week, I was uh, with my family driving from Kansas to Fredericksburg for Thanksgiving and listening to the radio about what had happened. You know, even to this day, when I think about it, I get emotional. But on that day, tears streaming down the face. During that, that game on November 26th, the day after Thanksgiving, at Kyle Field, UT Band dedicated their performance to the students who had lost their lives. Played Amazing Grace, played Taps, and then they removed the white cowboy hats as they exited the field. The A&M students, who usually sit during the halftime uh, opposition band during their performance, stood as they normally do when the Aggie band playing and the game is on. And when the Texas band left the field, the Aggie students who were standing and breaking their tradition, but in solidarity for this event, gave a standing ovation to, to their band and to the Texas Longhorn Band. Don't think it's ever happened before that or since then, but on that day. People connected to each other come together in tragedy. No longer Aggies, no longer Longhorns, but on that day, Texans. And on that day in 586, during that siege, the Edomites were cheering at the devastation that was being brought upon Israel. Second part of the devastation, the uh, catastrophe, is found at the end of the psalm. Daughter Babylon doomed to destruction Happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. This was a feature of warfare in the ancient Near East. Small army being defeated by a larger army. Larger army go through the town or go through the ranks. Small children, babies grabbed up, dashed to the ground. The idea was that you were making warfare not against that present generation only, but against the generation to come. And it was done to wreck and to break emotionally and morally the conquered nation. It was to arouse shock and horror. And in shock and horror, the people are being dragged from their homes into exile. Away from the city and the temple of God, and in their minds, presumably away from the presence of God, it was erroneous thinking, but that's what they thought. 
And not only that, it was away from the hills of the south, and they were brought to the flat plains of Babylon. And it was there that this thorough disorientation in life began. In verse 1, he says, by the rivers of Babylon. That's not where he's supposed to be. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. The poet Robert Herrick says that tears are the noble language of the eyes. The psalmist is crying. Why? He's in deep mourning. Ancient people would sit as they wept while in mourning. And then on top of that, the Babylonians are beginning to, to mock the core beliefs of the Hebrews. They're walking through the, the, the city among the conquered people, the Tigris, the Euphrates, the intricate and complicated system of canals through the plains. And they would see them there, and they would taunt them. You think your God is great? Then why are you here? You think your God is mighty? Then sing us one of the songs of Zion. Sing us a song. It was a taunt to worship. But the worship had been knocked out of him. And he's angry. And his life has become as flat and two-dimensional as the plains of the land in exile. And he asks the question, how can we sing the songs of Yahweh, the songs of the Lord, while in a foreign land? Many of you know intimately the thoroughly disorienting times of life. Not to this scope, not to this degree, but an experience of calamity for you. Death where there should be life. Threatening illnesses where there should be health and vitality. Betrayals where there should be loyalties and devotions. Injustices and inequalities where there should be Fairness and justice. Abuse, where there ought to be and it's the expectation that there's going to be safety. Apathy and neglect in the place where there should be love. One of the things that the wise learn from Psalm 137 is to be honest about what doesn't make sense. Something good is threatened by something bad. Tragedies lead to tears. Anger that things are not the way that they're supposed to be. The Bible, not one time, the Bible never teaches, not a single solitary time, to swallow or to stifle or to stuff the emotions. I mean, for goodness sake, what's the shortest verse in the English Bible? Jesus wept. Eugene Peterson retranslates Psalm 38 in the message this way. He says, now I'm flat on my face, feeling sorry for myself, warning tonight. I'm on my last legs. I've had it. My life is a vomit of groans. Where in this world do you take your vomit of groans? About two weeks ago, Ellen and I 
grabbed the granddaughter, our two-year-old granddaughter Blair, it's Ellen and me, Mimi and partner, we're babysitting. We decide, we've got the baby, we're going to Marble Slab, time to eat some sweet cream. It was about 400 degrees outside. <laughs> and what happens when you put inside of a two-year-old a milk product and then they get overheated? That little baby threw up and threw up on partner. I'm holding that baby and just throwing up and throwing up and throwing up and throwing up and throwing up. And guess what? I didn't die. <laughs> Who wants to hear your vomit of groans? Your father. Who wants to listen to that? God does. You take it to God. And this is where we begin to see the spiritual reorientation in this, this guy's life. I mean, many times I have prayed, God, what in the world is going on? This does not really make a whole lot of sense, and it's not very comfortable. Please change it. I don't understand. I wish I had a nickel for every time that I prayed that. But you know what? Honesty before God begins a spiritual reorientation. The first thing that happens is the psalmist begins to remember a future different from his present. He says in verse 5, If I forget you, Jerusalem, may my right hand forget its skill. May my tongue cling to the roof of my mouth if I do not remember you, if I do not consider Jerusalem my highest and biggest and deepest joy. The psalmist does not recognize a life that does not include Jerusalem and all that Jerusalem represented. God and his kingdom. Jerusalem. God and his kingdom. God and his glory. God and his presence will identify the psalmist. The calamity is going to leave its mark on him. Calamity is going to leave its mark and it's going to shake him to the core. But he will not allow the calamity, the catastrophe, to become his core identifying mark. God will be. And then the second thing is that he allows God to be God. Which brings us to the most controversial part of this text. Daughter Babylon, doomed to destruction, happy is the one who repays you according to what you have done to us. Happy is the one who seizes your infants and dashes them against the rocks. What do you do with that? Except notice what he's not asking for. He's not asking for them to disappear off the face of the earth. He's not asking for them to be annihilated. He's asking Leviticus 24. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. Verse 20, the one who has inflicted the injury must suffer the same injury. Do to them what they did to us. In other words, he is asking, he's turning to God for justice. And he will not take revenge because that belongs to God, as does justice. 
And he's not going to usurp the place of God as judge, but trust God to put things right. Now, as we conclude this thing, I'm going to say that I don't think that for us today on this side of the cross, that this is a prayer that we pray, this end part. And it's not because we don't have a desire for justice and for things to be put to right. We want to see things in God's economy forever and ever and all of eternity. But what happens when we live in the light of a crisis? There's this this place in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 19, where Jesus is approaching Jerusalem. And Psalm 137 is in his mind. He's approaching Jerusalem. He saw the city. He wept over it and said, If you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. They will dash you to the ground. You and the children within your walls, they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Psalm 137 comes to mind as he comes across the top of the Garden of Gethsemane and uh, the Mount of Olives. He's about to cross the Kidron Valley and go into Jerusalem. And he knows what's going to be there right there in front of him. He knows that these are the very people that as he enters are going to be saying, Son of David, hallelujah, Hosanna, Hosanna. But only a couple days later are going to be saying, Crucify him. Give us Barabbas, but crucify him. And instead of saying, You're going to get everything you deserve, and you're going to get all that's coming to you, and God's going to make sure of it, and you're going to be wiped off the face of the earth, and so on and so forth. What's he doing? He's weeping. He's weeping. And then finally comes the day, there finally comes the day when they nail him to the cross. And what does he say? What does he say? Forgive them, for they know not what they do. There's, there is the place for justice. But Jesus brings something greater, a grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. Justice is, is getting what you deserve. And grace is getting what you don't deserve. There's um, a lot that has been written about the, the tribal atrocities between the Tutsi tribes and the Hutus. And there was a story that was published a couple of years ago where two young people who had been a part of those atrocities had met up with each other. The one was the daughter of a family who had witnessed that very young man with a machete hack her family to death. catastrophe and calamity landed not just in a country but it landed in the hearts of individual people in village life 
And because of what, it, what, what happened when, when God, and all, all of the answers don't come to us, but there's one that comes to us, and it's this, that we may not know the reason behind every atrocity that comes into the world, but what we do know is that God is not indifferent to it. And he himself, God the Father, saw God the Son dashed against the rocks and thrown against the ground and killed. And that gospel came out of that event, comes into the hearts of people. And Felicita the name of that young woman who saw that young man from another tribe hack her father and uncle and family to death. He, coming to grips with the violence that he was capable of and seeing, not just feeling the torment of it, but seeing the torment that he had brought into other people, finds himself at the foot of the cross. And you find the man with the machete dropping the machete and you find the woman with the machete in her heart because of the gospel, both now Christian, reconciling to one another. And now sharing a bicycle as they go from village to village to village and that part of their nation talking about the power of the gospel and what happens when, when people infused with grace and infused with the gospel, enter into calamities and catastrophes in life. There is going to be at least another calamity, a catastrophe that's going to take place that no one is going to be able to describe to you adequately what it's going to be like. In fact, no one is going to tell you when it's coming. But there is a judgment that is coming when the Christ, the Messiah, Jesus himself, returns to earth. Returns to earth. And there will be justice. And there will also be grace. And where will you stand on that day of catastrophe and calamity? Will it be that for you, a calamity, a catastrophe? Or will it be a day in which all of the mercy and all of the grace that you have received through the gospel, through the love of Christ, because of God's desire not to kick us to the curb, but to save us and to love us, it will be the sweetest moment in your experience that you don't have the words or the emotions to describe or even embrace that moment right now. That's why we ask you in this invitation to make a response to God and His call to you to leave that old life and to come into a new life that is marked by Him and by His presence and by His Word and made so by the presence of His Son. You repent. You, you, you change the direction of your life. You confess that there is someone else in charge of your life. Your sins are washed away. You align your, line, your life up with God through baptism. God puts His Spirit in you to give you that spiritual strength that you need to make all of these requisite changes that come because God is changing you into the human being you were always intended to be.
person of mercy, person of gentleness, person of self-control and kindness, and above all, love. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. And if there is any way that we can help you to see that day as a day of light by helping you become a child of God, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we stand and we praise God together.